Good morning, Calvary Chapel. Um, go ahead and turn your Bible to John chapter 8, and then notice immediately in the footnotes of your Bibles uh, all the comments about whether or not this passage of Scripture belongs um, at all, or if it belongs where it does, and, and read the notes of all those people that wrote the notes of your study Bibles. They're smarter than I am. Uh, study it for yourself and check this out. Um, we're coming to a controversial part of the Bible, and it's not because of what it says, it's just uh, because it, it is at all. Now, I, I love the Bible, I love the Scripture, uh, and one of the things that I love about the Bible so much is that it, it so consistently speaks to the human condition. It, I mean, it, it so faithfully addresses um, the, the heart of man. And, but for the apologist or, or the skeptic, that, that, kind of, that kind of love that, um, that I'm describing can seem subjective or up to interpretation. So usually if the topic of Scripture comes up in that sort of conversation, the reliability of the Bible is one of the things um, that people want to spend a lot of time talking about, and it's, it's a conversation worth having. Um, but so, so in that sort of um, realm, the realm of uh, you know, apologetics, it's not the consistency in how the scripture speaks to hearts, but how it got to the page and, and how it's changed since it got there. And that's usually not the subject of a Sunday morning sermon, um, but, but here we are. And you guys know that I've, I've taught on this before. I've taught on the reliability of Scripture before. I did a midweek class on how we got the Bible. And there are some really great resources about the authenticity of the biblical documents out there. There's a, there are great men who have made it their life's work to study dusty scrolls. And, and, uh, and the conclusions are always reassuring that the Word of God has been preserved throughout history and that we can confidently know that these are the very words of God. However, there are passages like this one, like John chapter 8, that we come to today that raise questions for, uh, for the biblical textual critic. And I realize that this may mean less than nothing for some of you, and so I'm not going to take the whole time talking about manuscript evidence. Uh, if you want that, I, I've got some books for you right over there on the bookshelf. Come by and get them. Um, I, I would suggest you look at the works of Dr. F. F. Bruce, and then perhaps the works of apologists like William Lane Craig, um, but I will briefly share with you why this is a problem passage, and also how I address it personally, as a Christian and as a pastor, and then without, without those explanations and, or sorry, with those disc, uh, explanations and disclaimers firmly in place, we're just going to teach through it like we would any other text. So first, why is this a problem passage? Why is John chapter one, John chapter eight, excuse me, verses one through eleven uh, a tricky passage? The simple answer is because it's not in the oldest manuscripts. The passage we're going to teach today is not in the oldest manuscripts. And if you follow John's story, like we've been doing since December, you see that the story flows very smoothly from the end of chapter 7 to chapter 8, verse 12, or verse 13. And this story doesn't really, this story about the woman caught in adultery doesn't really fit with that narrative. The vocabulary in this story doesn't really match the rest of John's writings. And in the manuscripts, where this story does show up, it shows up in different places. Sometimes it's here, in between John chapter 7 and 8. 
Sometimes it's earlier in the Gospel of John. Sometimes it's all the way near the end of the Gospel of John. And 4% of the time, my favorite 4%, it, it finds its way into the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us for one, or suggests, that this passage was not originally written by the Apostle John or placed here in his narrative originally. Now, most scholars, even conservative Christian believing scholars, believe that John did not write these verses. So what does that mean for us? Because we're about to read it. Well, a couple of considerations. One, just because John didn't write it does not mean it is automatically uninspired. Or in other words, just because John didn't write it does not mean the Holy Spirit did not inspire it. In our midweek study, uh, many of you know we finished up the books of First and Second Samuel. Uh, that's the names of, of those books. But Samuel, he, he dies halfway through First Samuel. Hmm... He probably didn't write 2 Samuel then, did he? Uh, the books, book of Joshua includes the death of Joshua. So that raises the question of authorship. Who wrote the rest of those verses? Uh, the five books of Moses. That's what they're called. They're officially called the five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. That include the death of Moses. The end of Deuteronomy includes the death of Moses. So we all accept that there were multiple hands writing those books. There were multiple authors, or at least there was a chief editor who was able to insert important information where he saw fit. And that's okay. That's, that's true of many books of the Bible. So if there was a mysterious author that wrote the words that we now have uh, as this story, if that wasn't John, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Nor do we have any indication, seeing where this story happens in the different manuscripts, we don't have really an indication that someone pretended to be John. Someone wrote this story, and then the church and Christians in the church just put that in their Bibles like a bookmark in several different manuscripts, and here's where it ended up. Now, another thing to remember, uh, just the fact that we don't think John wrote this doesn't make the story untrue automatically. That would be a, a leap if we were to assume that. Um, in fact, long before this story made it into the biblical manuscripts, the story was told among the church and accepted as fact. As early as the 100s, this story was told and probably included in normal church readings, even though the manuscript evidence of John's writings left it out during that time. Uh, why is it found here? Um, is probably the decision of a well-meaning editor, uh, not unlike the scholars that split the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, which that's not an original split, uh, or the medieval editors who added chapters and verses, which exist in your Bible, which are of course not inspired. Now the early church, which did not have chapters and verses, divided their scriptures if they divided them at all. They divided them into daily and weekly readings. So it's possible that they had this story, which had been accepted as a real part of their Christian history, and they identified it uh, un unanimously as worth considering for the church, and realized that it was a standalone story and did not fit anywhere. This is where it landed. Um, so again, it does not seem that John wrote this. That does not automatically make it untrue or uninspired. One of the things we believe as Christians, is that the God who preserved his church for the last 2,000 years has also pre preserved his word. 
And as we are part of a 2,000-year-old church that has fed upon the scriptures, we have to realize that this story has been part of the complete diet uh, of the church for all 20 of those centuries. So we look at it and we identify, well, this story doesn't seem to be written by John. But then we exist in a church that has fed on this good meal for 20 centuries and realize, I'm going to eat it anyway. So that's my, my personal take on this passage. We read it. We're going to read it. We study it. Uh, and while we know that there are question marks around it uh, that aren't around other passages necessarily, when you develop a healthy way of studying scripture, what you're doing is constantly comparing each verse with other verses and bringing in cross-references and context and asking questions so that no one passage becomes out of place or becomes misinterpreted. Uh, that's the idea anyway. So we address this passage the same way. Uh, we ground it within the whole of Scripture and within the whole of the, the history of the church, and thus we protect our minds and our hearts from anything false, any sort of deception. So we go to it kind of as a standalone Bible story about Jesus and trust in him to purify our thoughts about it. So with that introduction that may be completely unnecessary for some of you, let's go to John chapter 8 and read from verse 1 through, uh, through verse 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they may have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, who, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. But those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up, he saw no one but the woman. He said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you, the one who does not condemn, uh, would grant us grace and, and mercy as we look at this passage, that your Holy Spirit would, um, would guide our hearts and minds in the right direction, so that we can think well of you, so that we can worship you well, uh, so that we as your church can be uh, lovers of mercy, as we see your mercy here presented in such a lovely way. Guide us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, that first verse there can show you also how out of place this passage is in John's narrative. Um, you look back at the last verse of chapter 7 for a start, and it says, Everyone went to his own house, 
which is part of the questionable text right there. That's not in the original, you know, the oldest documents. Everyone went to his own house, and then now chapter 1 of verse 8 says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. It's like they split the chapter just right there in a real awkward place. Um, he and his disciples, presumably, instead of going home after the feast, remember it was the last day of the feast, uh, this suggests that they went up to um, the, the Mount of Olives, which is right in there in Jerusalem and staying there. Um, but it says in verse 2, Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Um, this is something we read of Jesus doing in other places in the Gospels, so we're not, uh, we're not in any strange sort of territory uh, with this. Luke chapter 21, verse 38, talks about Jesus going early in the morning to the temple to teach people. Now for those kinds of teachings, don't picture a, a pulpit at the front of the room. Remember, the temple wasn't a place really for teaching like a modern church. It was a place for sacrifices and ceremonies and large gatherings. But there were places that were well suited to smaller public gatherings, and, and there were covered places where you could get, uh, you could get a, a whole crowd out of the shade. And both Jesus and the apostles in Acts make use of these areas to teach people. Uh, it was sort of like an old public square, it seems. And um, verse 3 says, Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, the very real problem that is presented here is not just in the uh, rudeness of the interruption, though you have to notice that. This would have derailed any sermon that Jesus was in the middle of, I'm sure. But it's... it's um, it's in this story that the Pharisees are presenting that we find the biggest problem. There's an obvious injustice happening. Uh, adultery, unlike theft or murder, is a sin which requires at least two participants. But here, only one is brought for judgment. That's problem number one. Problem number two, it says she was caught in the very act. Now, I'm sure that was embarrassing for all involved, but again, the identity of the man involved would have been known because he was there when they caught her. So there's these inconsistencies that should jump out at you as you read this. When the inconsistencies are this glaring, this obvious, it's probably a pretty sure thing that the people with the problem have ulterior motives. And these men do. They aren't there for justice, because the justice that they're asking for is so obviously unjust. There are, they're there to test Jesus, just like they've been doing, just like they'll continue to do. And this is something that certain people will do a whole lot of as Jesus gets closer to the cross. There are plenty of tests and traps that they set for Jesus. And this is one of them that is very like to the others. It's uh, when, you know, when they say, who should we pay taxes to? And they think that they've got him trapped because, yes, you know, uh, Caesar is the wrong answer and, and no one is the wrong answer, so how's he going to answer? When they ask, whose wife will this man be in the resurrection? They're planning on making a fool out of Jesus. Um, they, but they aren't honest questions. Those are questions that are asked in order to cause problems. And this is the same thing. They say, Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Just stop right there. 
So here's the trap, and John says, or whoever wrote this passage, says it's a trap. They know that Jesus has this annoying habit of forgiving people who sin, and they can't stand it. He spends time with tax collectors and sinners. That's sort of his whole thing. So they have this woman who is a sinner, and they think they have twisted his arm. They think they're giving Jesus an ultimatum. You either choose forgiveness, which is kind of your brand, or you choose justice as the law requires. Choose loyalty to the law and Moses and Judaism and our nation and state and culture, or you deny your principles of mercy and forgiveness. You choose either Moses or this adulteress. That's what they're presenting. And here's what they're hoping for. They're hoping that either Jesus says, yes, I have to submit to the law, so let's stone this woman. And they know that this would be terrible optics for Jesus in the public eye. No one would be able to look at him the same way. All of his followers who know in their hearts that they are just as guilty as the woman will turn away from him. And he won't, he won't be so popular anymore, which would be great for the Pharisees. He won't be a threat any longer. Or, he'll have to say, I know what the law says, I know what the Bible says, but I think we should do it differently. And if he says this, then he would confirm himself to be a heretic, and then they would have grounds for throwing him out of the synagogue, the marketplace, every other arena of, life, of public life. If he's going to discard the law of Moses, well, then he's not even an Israelite. So they can just treat him like a, a Gentile and a sinner. They, they, they think they have him trapped. And in verse 6, Jesus employs a strategy you will not see in any public debate. Uh, verse 6, the uh, second half there, it says, But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So th this is interesting, and I really like it. I like that we see Jesus' physical posture, that it's not just a script with dialogue, you know, where words are going back and forth. Jesus does something here very unique, very out of the ordinary, that catches their attention, that catches our attention. And what we see is that when, when he was asked to condemn, Jesus stoops down. When, when Jesus was authorized by these people to pass judgment, Jesus stoops down. And it says that Jesus was sitting down teaching. So, so Jesus, when confronted with sin and sinners, got off of his chair. He descends to the ground. He humbles himself and, and gives us an, a, a, an emblematic uh, visual aid of the whole incarnation. This one action shows us a play of the incarnation. Jesus, authorized to judge, to condemn, instead lowers himself. The position of stooping or bowing, even. It's one of humility. You know, possibly even remorse. Now, it doesn't say this, but it, it would be easy to imagine the woman who is to be condemned coming before her judge and stooping low before him. That would be a, a natural posture of someone begging for mercy, which this woman, uh, you know, probably is. She's probably hoping for the, the best outcome, hoping against hope to be shown grace, even though she was caught in this very act of sin. So she is low, and Jesus stoops down 
to her level. We know that it would be fitting for all of these hypocrites who have brought her to be in, in this better position. They should be bowing low before Christ instead of challenging him with this trap. We know that there will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But on this day, the accusers stand and, and, and uh, you know, later we see that the woman eventually is standing too. But Jesus stoops. No one else, when, when no one else can take the proper steps to confront sin, Jesus takes the sin on himself and does all the confronting. When humility before God was completely insufficient, Jesus came in perfect humility. But when one, um, when hum humanity's humility before God was, you know, non-existent, Jesus came in perfect humility. When no one else could perfectly stoop, when no one else was worshiping with a whole heart, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that is completely unfitting for Christ, the Son of God, to stoop before these people. But it was more unfitting for him to be lifted up and put on a cross. And because humanity has taken a posture before God that is completely unfitting for our relationship with him, we stand and accuse and condemn and point fingers and say, well, I oughta, and say, if I were God, and, and, and challenge him for his decision-making abilities. And when our, when our posture before God is one of shaking our puny fists and it's one of standing in rebellion, then Christ remedies this situation by a reversal, by, by the great exchange, exchanging his riches, and po his riches for poverty, his throne for dust, and he gets off his chair and he stoops so that we, we rebels, might be called sons of God. He stooped. And then he wrote with his fingers in the dust. I have no idea what this is about. Uh, we can't know because what he wrote because we're simply not told. Uh, we do know that the word for write here is, is to write down. Uh, could be like, like a list perhaps. And, and the, the basic word graphe to write could mean draw or scribble. There's this extra little uh, prefix here. Kata graphe adds purpose so that he could have written down, written down evidence maybe. Just a little bit of it. Um, that you know, uh, against someone. I have no idea what he wrote. But we have evidence here that Jesus was literate. He wrote something. He could write. Um, still don't know what he wrote. Tons of people love to guess. Uh, we're also quick to, but we, we can be um, just conscious of the, I guess, the drama of the situation. Again, it's very unusual. It catches your attention. He stoops down. He writes in the dirt. This isn't how you have a conversation with someone. This isn't... Uh, you know, according to the rules of debate. Um, but it mentions that he writes. It mentions that he writes down. That's the kata prefix, katagrafe. He writes down something. And he wrote with his finger. Um, so if you did, let, just let your imagination run with that, you should be able to see the parallel here of Jesus writing with his finger. Um, that's something that, that God has done already in Scripture. You know, uh, God wrote the law on the stone tablets, also by finger. The law, which brings judgment and condemns. Jesus showing mercy uh, as, as something that triumphs over judgment. 
So that's sort of interesting. It's also interesting to look back in Scripture to see the other places where a divine heavenly finger did any writing. There's the time in the book of Daniel, chapter 5. Okay, there's this feast, and a hand is seen on the wall. And it writes, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharsin. And this uh, was also a pronouncement of judgment on the kingdom of Babylon. Counted, counted, weighed, and divided. And the, and the meaning of this, Daniel would explain, is that God would divide the kingdom of Babylon then between the Medes and the Persians. And that's where the story, um, that, that's what happens in that story. And it's where we get the phrase, you know, the writing on the wall. Uh, you know, you, you say, oh, I should have seen the writing on the wall, or we could see the writing on the wall. It's like, oh, I should have seen it coming. We could see it coming because it was a warning. It was a judgment. Uh, it was about impending defeat. And well, now, in John 8, you see, uh, instead of looking at the writing of the wall, we look at the writing on the floor, and it's a different kind of message. Now, even without knowing what was written, we see that this story as a whole is one about forgiveness and grace rather than judgment and doom. Even with the, the accusers, it's a message about conviction rather than condemnation. God wrote the law by finger. Jesus writes mercy with the same finger. The angel wrote judgment on the king's wall in Babylon. Jesus writes on the floor, and again, he shows mercy. And while he's writing in this humbled position, not looking up, he pretends like his accusers aren't even there. Now, the end of that verse 6 says he was behaving as though he did not hear. And that line might not be in some of your Bibles. It's in the New King James. It's not in the NIV or the ESV. And it's just one of those things that shows up in some manuscripts and not others. Um, but I like it. <laughs> I like it. And in this story, we have a criminal. That's the woman. And yes, she is being abused here. She's being mistreated. And of course, there's injustice in the whole thing. Um, but and she's, she's being treated unjustly. However, she was caught in the act. She is not an innocent party. Then we have her accusers, those who saw her sin, those who caught her in her sin, and they're now bringing her before a judge for her sin. And then we have a righteous judge who is both qualified and capable and authorized to sentence the sinner, but knows he is being tested also by the prosecutor. The accusers are bringing the sinner to be condemned, and that should be easy. But the bigger issue is the justice and the mercy of the judge. That's what the accusers are really after. They're, they're there to attack Jesus. They're there to, to attack the judge. And I believe the reason this passage is included in Scripture is because it so clearly shows the gospel drama as it is presented in heaven. Here on earth as it is in heaven. In Revelation 12, verse 10, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. And we know he is. That's his work. And as a prosecutor... He directs his accusations in two different directions. He, he directs his accusations towards the victim and towards the judge. The enemy of your soul will certainly condemn you for your sin and remind you every chance he gets of the stain that your sin has left on you. The enemy of your soul wants you to feel humiliated, ashamed, worthless, defeated. But the accuser of the brethren doesn't just accuse you for your own sake. He accuses you before the judge. The dialogue between Satan and God in the book of Job, you see this back and forth discussion where the, the accuser and the judge have different opinions about the saint. Satan stands before God and accuses you. Just like these men stand before Jesus and accuse the woman caught in adultery. Now, by this time, they had already succeeded in accusing her to herself. I have no doubt of that. I think it's reasonable to assume that she feels horrible right now. 
but the but the shame of this whole ordeal, you know, I, I believe it's had its effect. It's left a mark. But the woman isn't really the primary concern of the accusers, is she? And the sinner, that's you, and that's me, that's really all of humanity, we're not the primary target here. We're not the primary focus of our accuser. Satan is at war with God. And yes, you find yourself in this war. You fight against principalities and powers, but it's not your glory that the enemy is after. It's, it's not you who would wish he would wish to dethrone, ultimately. Satan is at war with God. And the one thing we know from Scripture that the, that the, about the demonic realm is that it simply does not understand the gospel. Forgiving the sinner through the death of Jesus on the cross, that's, that is a mystery to uh, the powers of darkness. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, Paul writes, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And then later down in the, in the same chapter, in verse 7, he says, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And the rest of 1 Corinthians 2 is all about the power of apparent weakness, the spiritual strength that looks like weakness. And many of those who have power and authority have come to understand things only through the lens of might and ju judgment and justice, and, and like these Pharisees, and, and evidently like Satan himself. They will always view mercy and kindness as weakness, and they will see forgiveness as the inability to execute justice. And it's this understanding that led even the powers of darkness to lead Jesus to the cross, even to defeat themselves. From this perspective, God's only weakness is his tendency to show grace, and it's that understanding that leads the Pharisees to where they are. And the Pharisees, of course, are expecting Jesus to show this grace, and therefore show his weakness in terms of the law. He'll have to break that strong, mighty Mosaic law given straight from God. So they come and they ask. They're, they're playing the part of the accuser. The woman is the condemned sinner, and Jesus, the judge, gets down or writes on the ground with his finger, writing something better than judgment, and acts as if he can't even hear them. Now, this is an image I need you to, to transfer into your imagination. I need you to transfer this image to heaven. Okay, of Jesus there on the ground, writing on the, on the, in the sand. The accuser, already successful in demoralizing, dehumanizing, and degrading the sinner, now takes the case before the judge of all earth and lists with passion, but without embellishment, the crimes of the accused. He doesn't need to embellish because you're really as bad as he says you are. And the judge, upon hearing this list of your sin and your failures, my crimes, our offenses, doesn't even listen. He doesn't even engage. He gets down on the floor and draws with his finger. And while curious scholars and commentators will wonder endlessly on what did he write, the real beauty of the whole thing has nothing to do with what he wrote. The beauty of the story is just how little he listened. It's just how little Jesus is interested in listening to the list of, of the sins of this sinner. Jesus is not interested in listening to uh, that 
all of your accusations brought before him. He, he doesn't want to have this conversation right now. Your sins that he has already forgiven are not things that hold his attention. And that's really good news. Your mistakes are not things that he has any desire to talk about, except in the framework of how he is victorious over them and how he has delivered you from them. This is the image in heaven. When your sins are brought against you before the judge, he's not even interested in listening to them. But the accusers continue. They keep asking for it, really. They say, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Jesus, we know you can hear us. Jesus, hey, 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 up here. And verse 7 says, So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Now, stooping on the ground is not a posture of passing judgment. That's not a position you find the judge in. It's a humble position. He is associating with the lowly. He's ignoring the, the, the accusations from the prosecutors. It's a humble position, but they asked for it, so he stands up. Now he's in a position of authority. Now he does move into the territory of, of judgment. Now the sheer genius of his answer, it's beautiful and, and you shouldn't miss it. What did they want Jesus to say? Either she's guilty, kill her, or she's guilty, break the law and don't kill her. On the other hand, acting, um, you know, on, or excuse me, on one hand he would be acting without love, on the other he would be acting without justice. He does neither. He says instead that the issue at hand is not only the gravity of the sin, but also the qualifications of the judge. When capital punishment was necessary, it was done by stoning. And that's what they're suggesting should happen to this woman. And the one who was bringing the accusation was required to throw the first stone. That does skin in the game. This is what the law required. But Jesus says that, the, that justice was all, would also demand that the one throwing the stone be without sin. Now many suggest that Jesus is saying without this same sin, indicating that these men had been unfaithful and unchaste in their relationships, just as this woman had. If so, that's quite an accusation. Or he could be suggesting that the one who casts a stone must literally be without any sin. If so, that's quite a shift in law. If it is the first, they would have been condemned anyway. You will remember the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, whoever has looked at a woman with lust is guilty of adultery, and whoever hates is guilty of murder. And there are some words in this verse that appear nowhere else in the New Testament, uh, but do make an appearance in the Greek Old Testament, in the Septuagint, in an interesting place. So there's this verse in Deuteronomy 29, verse 19, and it's a passage where... God warns the people about secret sins. He warns them about, you know, uh, pledging allegiance to, to the God of Israel, but then secretly going after other gods and following their heart. Um, he warns uh, against, against the, the secret idolatry. And it says, So it, it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart, as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. The Lord would not spare him. And the word for sober there in the Septuagint is guiltless. And it's the same word Jesus uses here, without sin. And it shows up nowhere else in the New Testament. The Deuteronomy passage is describing people who are comfortable with their sin, but say, I'm going to follow my own heart like a Disney princess. No one will ever know. I'll never get caught. There's no evidence. I'll be fine. And Jesus says, let the guiltless one without the heart of sin, 
without the secret sin, cast the first stone. Uh, the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews it says that the word of God uh, is living and active, that it, that it cuts. It's a sword. If you spend any time before the scriptures, you know this to be true. It breaks and it binds up. It cuts and it, it heals. When Peter spoke on Pentecost, it, it says that the hearers were cut to the heart. And, and I think that when Jesus brought up this issue of sinlessness, echoing a passage that dealt with secret sins, his words, the words, the spoken words of the living word, cut to the heart. And that's what it says in verse 10. It says that they were convicted by their conscience. Jesus gave permission to these men to carry out justice according to their law. But he reminded each one that the sword of justice cuts both ways. And the one that demands justice had better be standing on a very secure uh, platform. Now in Western tradition, justice is, is blindfolded, right? Justice is personified as a woman with a blindfold on. Love isn't blind, justice is. And she's got a sword. She's got the scales in one hand and a sword in the other hand. Now, picture that woman. Do you really want to get in her way? Blindfolded sword lady. Now, he, he invites the accusers for inspection. Sure, they can condemn, but they have to stand against the same standard Jesus had said this elsewhere. He says, the way you judge, you're going to be judged. That's just the way it is. Because justice is blind and it's a two-edged sword. And he invites them to be inspected by the same standard that they are using to condemn this woman. And they are unwilling to stand before that kind of judgment. Read verses 8 and 9. It says, and again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Uh, it says they were convicted. And there, there's two sort of couplets that exist in this story. There's condemning and convicting. And then there's judging and judging. The other kind of judging. It says that these men were convicted. They know that they are convicts. Not because a judge has said they were guilty, but because their own consciences told them they were guilty. The Holy Spirit isn't your conscience, but he can use it. Now, being convicted is when you become aware of your sinful state. It's not an enjoyable feeling. It's not fun. It's not lighthearted. But neither is it the same as condemnation. Condemnation is sentencing. It's telling you where you're going. The accuser seeks to condemn. The spirit convicts. In the same way, there's judging, and then there's judging. We've got verses that say, judge not. And then we've got verses that say, judge. with Judge with righteous judgment. And, and it, it's sort of the same kind of idea uh, of, you know, this, these, this couplet. We're not to sentence people to hell. You don't have the authority to do that. You don't have the authority to condemn. But we do discern. And then we do act as salt and light, which do have convicting properties. Salt makes wounds hurt. And light makes all the cockroaches scurry back into the dark corners. But look at the difference between these two. Verse 10 says, When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
Now he validated the law. He knows she sent. He, he knows she sinned. He knows you sinned. But as the only one who is without sin, and, and therefore the only one with authority to cast that first stone, he says, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. He forgives and then he guides. He discerns. Does he dismiss her sin? No, he leads her in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. He shows her the goodness of God, and we know that it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, which is where he's wanting to bring these people. Now, there's, there's the interpretation and the application always, right? And I think, I think both jump off the page in this kind of thing. The interpretation is this. Jesus shows mercy to sinners. And the proper hermeneutic, that's a fancy word for Bible study, the, the right way to study scripture is simply this. Associate yourself with the sinner. You're the woman caught in adultery. You're also the accusers wanting to set a trap. Jesus becomes deaf to your accusers as you, stand, as you humbly stand there as the woman. He associates with the lowly. He, he comes to you in your deepest need and in your sin. He dismisses those who would crush you for your sin, and instead he crushes you with mercy. He breaks you, but he breaks you free. You know, the metaphor of Jesus as a stone is this. You either fall on him and you break, or he falls on you and crushes you to powder. We are the sinner, and Christ has shown us mercy. Let that mercy now guide us into righteousness. Now we're clearly in the area of application there, right? Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly before your God. We, as God's people and imitators of Christ, we discern and we show mercy. We judge with righteous judgment, but we do not do the work of Satan for him and accuse the sinner. We, who have had our sins forgiven, compete now for how much we can forgive. We seek to outdo each other in love and behave as Christ behaves in, in showing grace in order to guide. Now, this whole, this whole story is interesting uh, in its attention to posture, right? Jesus begins sitting, which is uh, a teaching position, just like I'm doing right now. But then he humbles himself. He lowers himself. And it, it doesn't say it, but it, it would make sense that during that time, the woman was also humbled. Sin pushes you down. Sin is a weight. It's a weight that easily ensnares. The one begging for mercy and knowing the, the tormented condition of their own soul lowers themselves before the judge, and Jesus associates with the lowly. But then after doing his hard work of, of, of humble mercy there, at the end of this story, we see the woman standing. She's standing. And it is because Christ has humbled himself, has become lowly, has associated with the sinner, is near to the brokenhearted, is that the, the, the sinner, the forgiven sinner, can stand before the living God and be seen and then be sent to show that same kind of mercy. Let's be that kind of church. Let's pray. Lord God, we... Uh, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that we have this story. We thank you that we have this Sunday in which to hear it. God, I pray that we, as your church, as your body, would be rich in mercy. Um, that we, as your body, would be quick to stoop. Quick to humble ourselves and associate with the sinner. We thank you for your mercy, for your kindness, for your love. And we pray, God, um, that we would be like you in this. That as, as we both kneel before you and as we stand before you in worship, um, that we would see you as you are, 
as this forgiving, gentle uh, God who does justice and loves mercy. We seek to walk humbly before you now. Holy Spirit, aid us in this venture. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.